0: continue in our uh, study through the gospel of Luke verse by verse. We now come to a, a section of the scripture that talks about greatness. And Jesus clarifies just what that really is. Begins in verse 21 of Luke chapter 22. and We'll go through verse 30. Let us hear the word of God. Jesus in the upper room that night said this, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is God's holy word. May he show us its deep truth in the mighty name of his son. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, as I was gone for the last couple of weeks, the new year turned and I got involved in what you might have gotten involved in and that was thinking about last year and contemplating the new year and maybe some changes that could be made in my life. It's the time when we do that, right? It's the time when we think about increasing things or in the case of your waistline, decreasing things. Well, we think about adding dimensions or getting to higher levels in our life, don't we? We think about greater achievement sometimes at the new year, begin to make maybe some professional plans. We, we uh, think about a promotion that we want to chase after or position ourselves for. We usually get to thinking about money and uh, the need for more of it or the desire for more of it and to increase our earning power. Some of us might be thinking about a career change this year. Others might be thinking about starting a new business, the business we've always wanted to risk everything on, or some new venture. Some of us have been thinking about new ministries it's always, though, seems to revolve if we're not careful around becoming more of what we always thought we were meant to become, right? And we begin to think these thoughts, and they start to revolve around us and how we feel about ourselves, and that's the reason why this season right now is the self-improvement industry's biggest season, this 90-day window of time. It's their Black Friday. They make all their money uh, in, the, for, in the 90 days right after the new year. Now, if you're thinking about changing things in your life that will allow you to love God more deeply and love others more sacrificially, go for it. But here's the thing. When you think about changes in your life, Uh, If you're not careful, you can tumble into the modeling of the world and the drives of your flesh, and you can start thinking about acquisition. You can start thinking about enhancing your image, especially in our social media and interconnected age. You can think about building success so much so that you will find that you're going in unhealthy directions that end up damaging you and those that you love and will put you into a position of loss, even though you think, you're gaining what you always wanted there's a version of greatness in our culture particularly that if you're not careful will capture you it has captured me at times in my professional life and personal life we're all vulnerable to it greatness the version of greatness our society manufactures and it's true in any culture at any time and this is why Jesus, if you think about his ministry with his disciples, had to regularly challenge their thinking about greatness. How many times have we seen Jesus have to confront this dispute that rose among his disciples about which one was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, or which one loved Jesus the most, or which one was the greater the, the greater uh, among all of them? It constantly broke out, didn't it? And here again, Jesus challenges it on a night in which they ought to have been devoted to him and to his sacrifice and his coming betrayal. Instead, he has to step out of his pain into their problem. And once again, he gets into teaching them about greatness. There's false greatness, and then there's spiritual greatness. We know greatness is a theme in this narrative because the word greatness or something that illustrates it or or, or is akin to it, I, I counted it five times in this passage. So that's part of the narrative. It's part of the subject that the Spirit has placed this Scripture here for. I'm going to build this message today and I'm going to teach it verse by verse as I always do. But I'm going to keep an eye out for the issue of greatness because I think it's behind each of the events. You've got the betrayal that's talked about in the very first part of the passage. Here, Jesus is actually betrayed because of Judas's frustrated greatness obsession. We're going to see that borne out as I teach it. So really, we're going to discover the first thing, and that is that Judas represents the opposite of spiritual greatness. There's human greatness, fleshly greatness, but Jesus is interested in spiritual greatness. And Judas is an emblem of the opposite of that. So that's the first thing we'll see, how he betrayed Christ because of his own frustrated greatness addiction. But then as the the whole experience opens up and he gets into the disciples' argument he creates a teaching moment as jesus always did but not before he's disappointed because of their greatness addiction at a time when he longed for their compassion they break into this argument about greatness in the middle of his grief so he was betrayed because of judas's frustrated greatness addiction and we see that he's also going to be disappointed because of the apostles' greatness addiction and, and he's going to turn that around, and then he's going to teach him about the essence of spiritual greatness. He uses this whole situation to define true spiritual greatness, and he even promises that there's going to be a reward for it. So in case you're wondering, if Christianity kills all desire for uniqueness in your life. It doesn't. There is such a thing as greatness in Christianity. It's not human greatness. It's not cultural greatness. It's not fleshly greatness. It's spiritual greatness. And Jesus does talk about spiritual greatness in the passage. And he says, in fact, if you get onto that path with him, there will be great reward for you in eternity if you live a life of spiritual greatness. So that's all in the passage So let's look at it together, and the first thing we'll do is take a look at the beginning of the the story, if you will, and it it begins with betrayal. And so we see here the very first thing I want to talk about, and that's what the opposite of spiritual greatness is. Jesus sees it in Judas. Judas emblemizes, if that's a word, he, he portrays everything that human greatness is, and how it fails God's test. Now remember the flow of events. It's been a week or two since we've been in the text together. You remember that chapter 22 begins with a plot that's hatched in the first verses by the Jewish leaders to finally eliminate Jesus. And by eliminate, we know that other texts say murder, take him out, not just move him out of the scene until things quiet down, but get him into a legal situation where he can be executed. They wanted him either politically executed the right way or they wanted to quietly uh, conduct his murder and he would simply disappear. So that's the early part of the passage uh, or the chapter And the solution for how they would do this secretly knocks on the door because Judas begins to give his heart over to betraying Jesus. He's become disappointed with Christ, disillusioned with Christ, believing that Christ was going to be an earthly Messiah who would create a kingdom in which Judas would have his own position of greatness and along the way make a pretty good chunk of cash. All of that has collapsed now. Judas, in bitterness and anger, decides not only to abandon Christ, but to destroy him in his bitterness. And so Judas is influenced by Satan, the text says, and he now goes to these chief priests and leaders and offers them the opportunity to find Christ alone and capture him. Jesus, of course, is aware of all of this as omniscient God, He creates an evening that we know as the evening of the Last Supper. It was the celebration of Passover where he secretly gathers his disciples together with him. And in this chapter, we've seen that the last Passover is is commemorated, the Passover of the Lamb of God. And then Jesus ends the Passover, as it were, and he begins something new called the bread and the cup. The Passover looked forward to the arrival of the Lamb of God in human history who would take away human sin. Jesus was that Lamb of God. The next day He would take away human sin. After that, the Passover would have no purpose. Now He institutes something called the bread and the cup, which looks backward to that cross and backward to that great work of salvation He was going to do. And so the last time we were together, we finished at verse 20 where Jesus gave them both the bread and the cup. And he said in verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, at that point, as I read it, I, would have, I was putting myself in the place of the disciples, and I was thinking, what a holy moment. What quiet joy would have filled my heart over the fact that this great payment for my sin was coming close and that the bread and the cup symbolized it. But in that quiet moment comes a sudden shock, because the next verse, in verse 22, we see Luke telling us, pardon me, verse 21, Jesus then says, but behold, he interrupts their their span of thought, And he calls something out to them. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So we go from the sublime comfort of this great promise of forgiveness to this sudden shock. Of course, the mood in the room changes and Jesus now talks about the fact that Someone in the very room is going to betray him. In fact, it's someone whose hand is on the table with him. Bible commentators believe this is because Jesus that night had actually given Judas a, a place of honor right next to him around the, 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 the three-sided table there as they reclined on couches up to this three-sided table John was on one side of Jesus, and Jesus had given the next favored place to Judas that night, even knowing what was in his heart, perhaps out of a desire for Judas to understand how much he loved him and in the ninth hour repent of his sin. Judas was that close, and Jesus knew that he'd already committed to fully betray Christ. Satan had entered into him. He was on his way, and it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking to Jesus, but it was spiritually revealing in the moment. It revealed what spiritual betrayal is like. Once you get your eyes on human greatness and on the will of your own heart, you will betray Christ. And it gives us a a spiritual insight into what betrayal is like. And I, I see four or five things here as the text opens it up. Spiritual betrayal in Judas's life, first of all, was something he was committed to. Jesus said, behold the hand of him who betrays me. In our English, it's present tense. In the Greek language, it's a participle. All of that means that, that it talks about a continuous action, one that Judas had entered into a long time ago, something he would contemplated for months, and then finally stepped over the line as Satan tempted him further, and he made the commitment to go and see the Pharisees. And he went further when he accepted the 30 pieces of silver, and he went further when he came back and began to listen to figure out a time when he could betray Jesus alone. Judas was into this. He was fully committed to it. He had been at it at a while for a while, and he was not turning back. It is a frightening thing to see, betrayal in the life of a heart that had once been interested in Jesus. So the first thing I see is that he was committed in his betrayal. The second thing I see is that this betrayal was destructive. The word uh, betray there, it, it it was a Greek word, paradidomi, which meant to hand somebody over to another. Why is that important? Well, because, you know, if he had wanted to, Judas could have simply just abandoned Jesus by fading away. Don't you realize that's what could have happened? In his disillusionment, in his bitterness toward Christ, he simply could have stopped showing up. And instead of 12, there would have been 11. There would have been rumors. There would have been imaginations about where Judas went and why he wasn't there anymore. But he simply could have faded into the background of history. And nobody would have been the wiser. But he didn't. He took his bitterness Against God, and he began to hatch a plan against the Son of God. And it was a plan that involved betrayal, and it was a plan that involved money, but it ultimately, he knew that when he betrayed Jesus, he was putting him into the hands of those who wanted to kill him. So Judas knew not only that he was committed to something he couldn't turn back from because Satan had entered his heart, but he wanted to destroy Jesus. Think about it. If he had wanted to simply let the priest know where Jesus was going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could have basically, I mean, he he could have texted him a Google Maps link and an approximate time, left it at that, walked away, washed his hands, Jesus would have been betrayed. But oh no, Judas went and led the mob. He even concocted the ultimate betrayal of saying he'll be the one Whose kiss, whose whose cheek rather I kiss, in the midst of the garden. Spiritual betrayal, it becomes something that people become committed to, even though they have a lot of chances to stop. In Judas's case, it was also something that was very destructive. Peradidomi, with a Greek word, was often used to describe criminals being uh, turned over to punishment. So he knew what he was doing. Thirdly. It's fascinating here, Jesus said, for the Son of Man, in verse 22, goes as it has been determined. This is interesting. Jesus, in the midst of his sorrow over the fact that Judas, whom he had poured his heart into, was betraying him, now says, all of this is under my Father's control. The greatest crime in human history. Remember a few weeks ago when we started this chapter, I I called it uh, history's most wicked hour it's very possible that this is the deepest human sin ever committed. And in this wicked hour of history, Jesus says, as wicked as this is, my Father has determined all of it. I'm going to that cross tomorrow. I'm even being betrayed by this one as it has been determined. Perfect tense in that word indicates something arising from a completed action or decision in the past. When was the decision made for Jesus to go to the cross? Ephesians 1 tells us before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 again affirms that salvation was God's plan for you before you were ever born, before the cataclysm of evil ever arrived in the human universe, God had a plan for his son to go to the cross for you. And he had arranged for it to happen through the betrayal of Judas. God was in control. This was history's most wicked night, and God was in control of it all. I don't know about you, but I find comfort in that. Wickedness is overwhelming when you see it for what it really is. It's stunning when it invades your life in a way that that is deep and and, and harsh and horrible. But even then, God is in control. The crucifixion was not an accident. It had to happen that way because it it was the central piece of God's great plan of redemption for you, for me. In fact, Matthew and Mark and their gospels say that Jesus went to the cross, quote, just as it was written of him. In other words, all the prophets prophesied this event. From, from, from the, the, the writer of Psalm 22 talking about the crucifixion itself to Zechariah himself talking about the one that was going to be pierced for human sin. All those prophets, all of them, they were turning human history with their words and this had to happen because God had a great saving goal in it. So who crucified Jesus? Who drove Jesus to the cross? Was it Judas or Satan in Him? Did they create a situation Christ couldn't get out of that was the ultimate human tragedy? No, God was over it all. The scripture repeats this, and the early church understood it. In Acts chapter 2, and verse 23, Peter went to preaching in the beginning of the church, and he spoke to the very same leaders gathered in the crowds in Jerusalem when the church was born in Acts chapter 2. And he said, this man, Jesus, was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This is Acts 2.23. This man, Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. Later on in Acts 4.28, the church, again, recognized that the leaders preached this way, for truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. So, beloved, you have to understand that even in the blankest demonstration of wickedness, no one acts apart from the sovereign plan of God. I don't understand that. It's a contradiction in my eyes, but I take it by faith, and I'm so comforted by that. It's been said that every choice and every act and every decision made by every human in the world, even the most evil behavior, the most heinous sin, God overrules and fits into His plan for His own purposes and His own glory. So Jesus, in this dark hour, says, oh, all of this is determined by my Father. And yet, no human will is exercised without being responsible for itself. Here's the contradiction. It's known as a paradox. A paradox is is something that's that's a self-contradicting proposition. It says that both A and B are true when it looks like A and B cancel each other out. Because Jesus said... It is all happening as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Woe was the the exclamation of destruction. In the Hebrew culture, it was often used to talk about a person heading for hell. Without hope. So Jesus was saying, hell awaits this one by whom I am betrayed. So yes, God's in charge of it all, but here I see the fourth thing. And that is that even though it's sovereignly controlled, it's personally decided Judas was going to be eternally responsible for what he did. This self-contradicting proposition, a paradox, but only to our eyes how God and his sovereignty works all this out is a mystery we may never quite understand. But he was responsible. Just as in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached to those Jewish leaders, he said this is all uh, done by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, but you nailed him to the cross. So he called them to repent. So Judas was responsible. It's been said by some Bible commentators that Judas was around more gospel light and he responded to it with the deepest rejection and the greatest crime against goodness and mercy of any person in history. And that if there are levels of torment in hell, he may be at the very lowest of those. He may be in the worst. Today people put on their commitment to Christ and then abandon it almost like changing a fashion or getting out of a t-shirt. We don't make a big deal out of it. People suddenly become enemies of the cross and we just say, well, it didn't make sense for them. And we we let it pass so blithely. You think about it. You have to rebel against a lot of light and a lot of mercy to reject Jesus when you've been that close. You know somebody that has had a lot of light and a lot of mercy, and as Hebrews chapter 6 says, has tasted of the goodness of God and yet turned from Him and now crucifies afresh to themselves the Lord of glory. Don't let that go lightly. Pray for them. Tell them how serious it is to abandon Christ. Think about whose company they're about to keep. So Judas represents the the opposite of spiritual greatness. He's involved in human greatness, and he was committed to a heinous act that was ultimately designed to destroy Jesus. It was all sovereignly controlled by God, but he personally decided every moment of it, Judas did. And here's the last thing. It was ultimately selfish. You think about the, the amount of time that passed that night where Judas could have turned back. It was days in which he contemplated his strategy to betray Jesus. There was there were there was a secret meeting, there was day, a day or two for him to think about the content of what he'd done. The silver jingle in his pocket, and he could have taken it back, but he kept going. And then that night that Passover went for hours, and Jesus had sat him right next to himself so that he might have the full gaze and the full attention of the wonderful, merciful Son of God. All of that was intentional by a mercy-seeking God. He sat through and listened to how the Passover was going to be fulfilled by the Lord Jesus, and he listened about a bread and a cup that was meant for lost people, God-hating people. He could have repented at any moment in time, but he ultimately was so driven by selfishness that when earlier, when Jesus had mentioned that there was going to be a betrayal, they went around the room and, and Judas looked right at Jesus and said, in effect, surely it couldn't be me. That's how selfish he was. That's how caught up in his human ambition. You say, how could he be that blind? Bible teachers for centuries now have asked the question, why did Judas betray Jesus? Why was the most wicked act ever conducted by a human being? What was it driven by? And we don't know, but there are some pretty clear guesses. Jesus said, ultimately, Judas did it because he was He was an enemy of God. He was a false believer. Jesus called him a son of hell. He was never regenerate. He never had a true heart for God. But there were two other things that drove Judas's life. And this is why he says an illustration of human greatness. We know money drove it, don't we? How many pieces of silver were in that bag? 30 pieces of silver. He negotiated a financial windfall. He was following Jesus because he knew where the crowds were going, money was going. And he wanted to be around this because he was greedy. He had human ambition. He was into acquisition. But we also know... That just like the other disciples, he was interested in a reward when Jesus finally arranged the great Jewish kingdom the Messiah would bring. He was looking to be sitting in a place of power. And when he realized that Jesus wasn't going to set up a human kingdom, but he was going to go to a blood-soaked cross, everything he was wanting in his human greatness paradigm wasn't going to be there anymore. And so he got disappointed and he got angry. What drove Judas to betray Jesus Money and power. What do you think those things are? Those are the two pathways to human greatness everybody chases in their flesh. Isn't that true? Money and power. So Judas is a great example of what the opposite of spiritual greatness is. Here's here's how I would apply it to my life. And we are in a culture that is completely soaked in both of those domains. More money and more power more influence, more visibility, more more preeminence. Here's how I applied it to my life. I reminded myself the desire for human greatness is ultimately destructive. The desire for human greatness is ultimately destructive. You see it all around you. You may have seen it at points in your past. So what's the alternative Spiritual greatness. Now we get into the rest of the passage. You see, watching and listening to all of this were the other disciples. Now initially they respond with some encouraging concern in verse 23. They began to question one another, hearing about this betrayer, not knowing who it was. Interesting, none of them suspected Judas you already know this. Many Bible teachers have said he was the most seamlessly deceptive false believer in history. Fooled them all. But they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Not only were they asking the Lord, could it be me, Lord? But they were looking at others in the circle, questioning each other. Now, initially, that might have been encouraging to the heart of Christ in that they were shocked by this and concerned by this. But pretty quickly, as the disciples were wont to do, they went from encouraging to disappointing. <laughs> have you noticed that with these guys? They'll have a great moment and follow it by an hour of total train wreck. That's the way they are. I'm very encouraged by those guys. Encouraging for a moment, but then disappointing because they get into this argument. But Jesus creates. Got great teaching out of it. So now we get to the second dimension of the message, and that is we now go to the essence of spiritual greatness. If Judas was the opposite of spiritual greatness, human greatness in all of its destruction, what is the essence of spiritual greatness? And Jesus now uses their dispute to teach them that. So like I said, in verse 23, initially they, they have some sensitive hearts, which is good. They they question one another. Which of them it could be who was going to do this? Is it I? But then they quickly descended into having proud hearts. Not good. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now you take a look at this, and how do you go from verse 23 to 24? What kind of human transaction would have happened to go from sensitive hearts to, to proud hearts? And we can only guess, but commentators have looked at this and thought, "Well, they might have initially been sensitive to the plight of Christ and worried about whether it was they and they but then uh after they had all just kind of declared, "Is it i and then there's silence in the room for a few moments, perhaps one of the disciples looked across the table down a bit to somebody that was at the end of the table with a little cut in his eyes and was looking at him, maybe even shook his head a little bit. And then another disciple looked across the table at another one. The silent body language was, I know it's not me, but, you know, I've always had a few thoughts about you. I know it's not me, but I wonder, is it you? And pretty soon the body language might have given way to verbal language. And somebody might say, what are you, who are you looking at? What are you looking at me for? Well, you don't think it's going to its me. And then boom, the room explodes into this accusation across the table. It's not me. How could you even think it's me? Nobody has loved Jesus more than I have. Nobody's walked with him longer than I have. Listen, he called me a lot of time, a long time before he called you, and I left more to follow him. How dare you? And pretty soon, we got this Bible study going crazy. <laughs> and you've got people angry and accusing and defending and it devolves into a dispute over who of them it's regarded as the greatest we know they were prone to it and we know that peter their example and leader often compared himself to the others and later that night he would say they may run from you lord but i never will and so there's the room they were, they were devolving into senseless spiritual superiority. And in the midst of this, the master of mercy uses this as an opportunity to teach him about the essence of spiritual greatness. He does two things. He, he gives them some very clear instruction on where their flesh is taking them. And then he, he concludes with a compelling illustration. Watch this. Verse 25, And he said to them, Quiets down the bedlam in the room. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. What was he saying there? He says, you're acting with human ambition. You're acting, you're loving human greatness. The same thing that this betrayer is driven by. You're tumbling into it. Sure, that's how the world around you looks at greatness. And he pointed out and said, "All the worldly rulers you're used to, every emperor you've ever lived under, every ruler that's ever governed Palestine, governed Judea, rather, whether it's a Herod or an Agrippa or whoever. There, by the way, there were no democracies in existence at the time. It's been pointed out. They were they were always ruled by an, an, an emperor." who was appointed through a system, or a despot who took control through violence. They were used to that. And he's saying, this is the way of the world, taking authority that you believe belongs to you, and then actually calling yourself a benefactor, he says in verse 25. That was actually very interesting. Adolf Deisman, who wrote a a great book on on archaeology called uh, Light from the Near East, said that was an inscription that if he could find a hundred different examples of how rulers in that age, whether they were emperors or tin pot kings like Herod, called themselves the benefactor of the people. In other words, they were so conceited about their greatness compared to everybody else that, that they were the only source of good for their people and their country. Sound a little familiar? And it turned into just this corrupt system, and Jesus said guess who you sound like? The kings of the Gentiles, exercising lordship over them. This great view of yourselves. And then he says in verse 26, but not so with you. The Greek is even more powerful. The word but is the strongest adversative in the language. Jesus is saying, there is no way you should be that way. You need to be totally the opposite. And then the word you is in the first position in the Greek, which basically gives it emphasis. You could translate it, but you, not so i have a totally different plan for my people i don't want my people to be driven by human ambition because it's destructive i want you to pursue spiritual greatness and it's totally different from what the culture around you teaches what's the difference i'll put it in two phrases He was saying, listen, worldly rulers, whom you guys are sounding a lot like, think that they are superior and they end up dominating others. Let me repeat that. Worldly rulers think they are superior and they end up dominating others. That's historic truth. On the other hand, godly leaders view themselves humbly and they end up serving others. Where do we see this? but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. The, the, the leaders of their culture saw themselves as superior to everyone. He's saying, listen, you look at yourself as inferior to everyone. In the Hebrew culture, the older you were, the more authority you had. He's saying, listen, regard yourself as the youngest. Don't put yourself in a position of greatness or influence or esteem or authority. Regard yourself humbly and make your goal to serve, not dominate. Worldly rulers think they're superior and they end up dominating others. Godly leaders view themselves humbly and they end up serving others. So he totally turns it around. And then, pardon the pun, but in verse 27, he turns the tables. Remember, they're all reclining on these couches around this three-sided low table in that upper room. You reclined at a table, and you were served by slaves. They, they brought their food to you, your food, your food to, to your table. He asks a, a clear rhetorical question with an obvious answer. For who is the greater, one who reclines at a table or one who serves? Well, the obvious answer is the greater person in the room is the person being served. is it not the one who reclines at table? Obviously, the question answers itself. Then he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. And here's where he goes from the clear instruction to this compelling illustration. Because some commentators, Dr. E.T. Robertson, among others, believe that it could have been at this very moment that Jesus did this. John 13 describes it. During supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Notice how that matches our text and that conversation. Rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Who is the greatest? The one who reclines at table. But I'm among you as one who serves. this is a mind blower, but it's possible at that very moment to illustrate all of this. He set aside his outer garment, got on his knees, and went around the three sides of that table as those men were reclining there, and he washed their feet. That's stunning to me, but it's just like him. They had a serious spiritual problem. They were in deep personal peril of getting wrapped up in human greatness, and Jesus showed them spiritual greatness is viewing yourself humbly and serving others, and he illustrated it unforgettably. Well, that's the essence of it. If it happened that way that night, what a moment. Say, how can we be sure? We can't be. But it happened one of two times. It either happened in that moment or happened earlier or a little later. Don't you think they would have gotten the message? 100%. I looked at that and I asked myself, Where are you getting your model for greatness, Joe? What is attracting you at this point in your life as you think about ending and finishing and all the things you could have done and didn't and all the things you could have but don't and all the greatness that the world surrounds you with, all these images, all these ideas, all these agendas. Where am I getting my model for greatness? Where are you? Maybe you're thinking about your work in life this year and you're thinking about, what you haven't achieved yet and you're starting to get driven by, by time running out and you're starting to make some decisions about the fact that you have just going to have to sacrifice some things and you're going to have to put in more hours and play the politics and everything else to get those promotions that are fading away and it doesn't matter what your family says. What model of greatness is influencing you? Or maybe you're a student and you're awash in the whole social media frenzy of comparison and imaging and, 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 and you're, you're, you're ready to give up your values as a Jesus follower because it's just not playing right with that circle of people that you long to be great in and you're getting ready to step over some lines. What about you? Or maybe you're involved in ministry, but it's just not enough ministry. And that siren call of getting more people to get involved with your social media or getting more people to to follow your teaching ministry or more people to affirm what you do is starting to cause you to just be dissatisfied. Where are you getting your model for greatness? Jesus gave you two options. And he identified the essence of spiritual greatness. Now, some of you at this point would be like me. You're a little bit more mature in the Lord. You've walked with the Lord for a while. And you might be doing what you often do when you read about the disciples and the Gospels. You might just be saying, for crying out loud, these disciples. The 12. How disappointing How could the Lord ultimately have chosen them? And what could he ultimately do with them? Well, they were disappointing, but let me tell you, as this text finishes up, you'll also see that they were still his. And they were faithful at times. They had been faithful at times in the past, and they were going to stay faithful because they were truly his, like Judas wasn't. And Jesus said that they were going to be rewarded someday with all their flaws. Because he says in, in, in Luke 22, verse, verse 28, I'd almost include the, the English word but in the front of that, but it's not inspired. You were those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table and my kingdom and sit on, the throne, on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He says, listen, as flawed as you are, your mind and your faithfulness, though it's small, is going to be rewarded someday. Just learn from me tonight and keep going. They were faithful at times. They were poor followers and their faithfulness was a poor level and it was even unimpressive faithfulness, but it was faithful. And even after they were going to disappoint him again by all fleeing later that night, (laughs) did they come back? Oh, yes. They would fail and flee, but they were his. They would return. They were what I would call falteringly faithful. And Jesus said, you guys have stayed with me. They'd stayed with him for three years, and some of it hadn't been easy. They'd left a lot of things, Peter said, to come and follow him. They'd endured some some of the hardship and the ridicule that Jesus had. And now they were there that night with a sense that something foreboding was about to happen that was going to change all their lives. But they still stayed with Jesus. I think that's a mark of a true disciple, by the way. In this age where we see so many people claiming Christ and then abandoning Christ, who's a true disciple? Well, though they may falter, they stay with Jesus. In John 6, there were all kinds of disciples on the hillside when Jesus had performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And then when Jesus began to ask more of them, it says in John 6, 66, that many of them said this was too hard for them and they departed. And then Jesus looked at the 12 and he said, do you not want to go away also? And Simon Peter, in one of his golden moments, stepped forward and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Faltering, but faithful. That's what the way they all were. And guess what? If you're the Lord's, that's the way you are. Faltering, but Faithful. That's a true disciple. And you'll go through whatever comes of going forward with Jesus. J. Oswald Sanders says this, watch when God shifts your circumstances, believer, and see whether you're going on with Jesus or whether you begin to side with the world. We wear his badge. We claim his name, but are we going on with him when it's harder? The temptations of Jesus continue throughout his earthly life and They'll continue throughout the life of the Son of God as he lives in us. Will you go through what comes with Jesus? I think that's a fantastic statement. If you're his, you will. And what happens? Well, that's the last point. Judas was the opposite of spiritual greatness. Jesus here uses this whole evening of failure to teach the essence of spiritual greatness, being a servant to others in the name of the Lord. And finally, there's a reward coming. Even though they were disappointing and immature and slow and faltering, they would fail Him again. They'd flee from Him, but they were His. They were falteringly faithful. And He said, because of that, I'm going to give you a place in the kingdom. Yes, this thing you're arguing about, who's going to be greatest... The kingdom is going to be so good that there isn't going to be any sense of anybody losing out. You'll all be at my table. What's he talking about here? Well, clearly he's talking about the millennial kingdom where those that have believed in Christ from Israel and from the church age are going to sit with Christ. You see, Israel was going to have its kingdom postponed, but it's not canceled. God still has plans for Israel. He's saving Jews now, and in the future Israel's going to turn to him, and a mighty revival will take place. And they'll march into what the Bible teaches us, to be the millennial kingdom. It'll all actually happen. And he says, when my kingdom comes, you will will be rewarded. Not just the Jews that would come to believe in Jesus as Messiah, but you as a believer in this age, Revelation 2.26, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. When do you think that's going to happen in that great thousand-year reign of Christ? We will have authority over the nations. We'll eat at his table. Those apostles will rule each of the 12 tribes of Israel. If you believe that, that, that Israel has been replaced by the church today, I challenge you to think about that passage. The church has never called the 12 tribes of Israel. No, Jesus is making a promise here that he's putting his integrity on the line with and he will fulfill it. God has a plan of reward for them, but also for you. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Who's that? That's you and me as we falteringly but faithfully follow Jesus. That's why in 2 Timothy 2.12 it says, if we endure, we will also what? Reign with Him. So there it is. There's a great reward. There really is something called spiritual greatness, as I conclude. It's a universe apart from human greatness. But there really is something called spiritual greatness, and if you want to use this phrase, there is something you can Create ambition for as a believer. What is spiritual greatness? I'll put it in a sentence. It's humbly seeking to serve God and others in whatever ways He decides. I'll repeat that. What is spiritual greatness? It is humbly seeking to serve God and others in whatever ways He decides. Notice the two words, humbly serving. That's what He wants your life ambition to be. That's what he wants, the expenditure of what he's given you in time, talent, and treasure to be. That's what he wants your spiritual giftedness to turn into. That's what he wants all that maturity you get from hearing the word taught to pour out into. That's what he wants your relationships to be like. That's what he wants your hopes to be. That's what he wants your ambition to roll around. He wants you to be somebody who says, Lord, this year at any time, in any way, how can I humbly seek to serve you and others in whatever way you to decide? Spiritual greatness. So, it still is a new year, isn't it? Are you looking to make some changes? If you're subtly starting to catch your cues from this world about enhancing your personal greatness, be careful. That can lead to disappointment and damage, my friend. But if you come to the Lord with an interest in finding more opportunities to serve Him and others, that is the game He's in. And it's eternally rewarding. He said, someday you'll taste the reward at my banquet table. And, and, and the rewards will be given to people that when we look at our common, modern Christian way of evaluating spiritual giants, totally backwards the humblest, the most forgotten, who served most sacrificially. I think they're going to be rewarded the most. And, you know, it's also a less stressful way to live. This is interesting. I'll close with this quote. Somebody I read this week said this, living as a servant really is the best way to live because we're no longer concerned for our own honor and credit. We don't walk around with hurt feelings and disappointed expectations, because all we really want to do is serve, and we can always do that. We can always do what we want to do, because somehow there's always a place and a person who needs serving. Isn't that true? It's really the best way to live. So you may be looking at this year saying, "I want to have more impact." I Want it to be different because I was here. Well, let me ask you this. Is there even one person in your world that in the name of Jesus you can serve? Then welcome to spiritual greatness.